The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What I want to talk about this morning is, uh, I'll call it uh, uh, different qualities or aspects of wisdom and the cultivation of wisdom. And so when we engage in this kind of a practice, uh, well, actually, I would say when we engage in anything that's of value to us, it's really important to get in touch with our uh, deep intentions, our motivations for uh, why we're doing um, what we're doing. And um, in terms of Dhamma practice, uh, what we're all doing here, uh, uh, to, to have a strong motivation helps us to recognize that um, there is refuge that can be found in, in these practices. So um, what I want to uh, start off with here is just a couple of sort of defining uh, uh, aspects that uh, are helpful. So when I refer to the perception of truth, uh, what I'm talking about is the way things are, or when I say the way things are, or when, when you hear people say the way things are, actually it's how we're perceiving truth, so how we're perceiving our experience. So uh, when we do this, uh, especially when we do this in like a meditative way, we're uh, really looking, well, I, I'm going to speak from a personal uh, perspective here. Uh, I'm oftentimes looking for ways to reduce the level of discontent and distraction, um, disease that I have in my own life. And so we can call that, um, what, the, what that is called is dukkha. I'm looking for ways to reduce the dukkha in my life. However, um, <clears throat> if I'm really honest, or if we're really honest, we sooner or later discover that, that this quality of suffering is really the baseline of all, uh, of, all of our phenomenal experience. So um, this, this really isn't... Uh, so easy to accept, um, uh, especially when our mind is not stable. I remember the first time uh, I picked up a book on Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> I looked at uh, I looked at the first few pages, and it said, you know, uh, there's suffering in life, and it, it, all, all this business about dukkha. And I closed that book so fast, and I put it back on the bookshelf saying, wow, I've got enough suffering in my life. I don't need a religion that teaches me <laughs> about suffering. Thank you very much. But in fact, um, not being aware of suffering and how suffering arises, what causes suffering and what causes the, the, the um, relief from suffering, we just end up uh, spending our life uh, sort of on a treadmill of, of doing the same things over and over and over again and never s seeming to find a way out of it. So that at a certain point, 
Um, in my experience, um, maybe it's a masculine thing, but it's just bear down and it'll pass sooner or later and then something else will happen. So it's, it's sort of grit your teeth and, and go through it. Well, this really obviously isn't very helpful. So um, one of the things that, that people do um, is that they just fill their, their life with busyness, with activities, with things to distract themselves. So there's this perception that things, there's this feeling, and there's this feeling of discontent, and then we look for ways to distract ourselves. We look for ways to get out of dodge, so to speak. And um, we really become quite expert at it. So some of us run to the refrigerator, and some of us, you know, do a million other things. But uh, what we're doing is is just not being able to be with things as they really are are presenting themselves to us. So um, I'm going to go back to where I started a little bit earlier and say that that when we encounter things as they truly are, our default habit is oftentimes to turn away from them if there's any degree of, of dis-ease associated with it. Now, I, I also want to be really clear that I'm not saying the entirety of our lives are dukkha or suffering, but um, what happens is that with, when we look closely, we see that suffering actually comes in very quickly. So even if we have something, and I know you've all heard this, if, if we're having an experience, it's a, it's a wonderful experience and we like it, you know, pretty soon we start thinking, oh, it's not going to last, or I want more of it, or, and, and that quality of being um, happy is soon replaced by this underlying dukkha this quality of um, resisting being with things as they actually are. So um, the Buddha actually teaches us um, that the end of dukkha doesn't come from running away from it or denying it or confronting it uh, in an aggressive way but rather from turning towards it and turning into the direct experience of it. Now, this is really counterintuitive. I feel really lousy, and you're telling me to turn and, and be with it. And how is that possibly going to make a difference? Isn't it just going to make me feel worse? And that's a, a perfectly reasonable and legitimate question for anyone to hold or to have. But this quality of learning to turn toward that feeling that's uncomfortable and, and decidedly unpleasant. Um, let me just stick with that because it's easier to get the, when I'm, the concept, to understand the concept I'm trying to talk about. It's this ability to turn towards that which is causing us discomfort that stretches the heart 
and gives rise to this beautiful quality of compassion. You see, because if the mind simply discerns that suffering is there, unless there's incredible brightness of mind, incredible mindfulness, so to speak, sometimes what's there is just too much to deal with. We can't really, uh, we see it, but then it just overwhelms us or something. And so there's a very fine line. But what happens is this, we turn and gradually try to touch these places and allow ourselves to be with them for a little bit longer. And lo it's, a, it's a gradual process. The heart's natural response is compassion. The heart responds to suffering with the very nature of the of the definition of compassion is to be with suffering, to bear witness to suffering. And so that which is difficult, too difficult to just look at, can be held in this container of compassion. And um, so that all sounds wonderful, but you know, how does that happen? Uh, and I would, I would say uh, it's worth considering that there's some aspect of faith that has to come into this equation. Otherwise, um, it becomes like a very heady, uh, dry kind of um, investigation, which, which will sometimes leave us feeling as though what's the point you know what what is the point here so um so when we look when we look at this suffering we see that you know it's there it's there all the time and and we we see that the distract the way we try to distract ourselves the the, the busyness of our lives that we're just on a we're on a treadmill trying to find satisfaction and trying to find ways to make us feel complete and trying to find ways to satisfy us, but actually, um, it's through looking at this quality of dukkha, of suffering, of turning towards it, as I said a moment ago, and really being willing to be with that thing that that we begin to cultivate wisdom. And um, this, this turning toward that feeling helps us to go below the way that we describe that to ourselves, our story about what's causing us to suffer. Because the story can become, it's, it's, it's very useful and we all have stories, but the story can become another form of restless distraction. As we try to analyze things to death, as we try to figure out why this is happening, why did my mother do that to me when I was five years old and my teacher did that and so on and so forth. And that's all, you know, there's a place for all of that, but but this feeling that I'm pointing to 
is is almost like a doorway to insight. It's a door in a way. In my own experience, it's become a doorway to freedom, because this thing I keep pointing to my. I always get it in the solar plexus. This sort of nodding up when things aren't just exactly the way I want them to be, and um, and and I. I build a story around this knot. And I've learned over years of hard practice that it's the running away from this this moment of recognition of dukkha that has kept me bound on this wheel of just doing the same dumb thing over and over and over again. So, um, so <clears throat> having said that, um, the Buddha has points out that there's two ways that Dhamma is expressed in our lives. And um, I'm always kind of, when I quote the Buddha, I'm always kind of, I have to sort of, uh, what? How can I quote the Buddha? But anyway, this is my understanding of the Buddha. <laughs> so so uh, he says that Dhamma is expressed in two ways. It's the way of truth, which is the way things are, and the way of practice, which is, in, in this particular case, is, uh, is the Noble Eightfold Path. So it's following the roadmap to the way of freedom. So uh, each of these, these aspects rely on the others. And um, uh, again, this is rooted in the Four Noble Truths. And f- I'm, for those of you who might not know what, what they are just off the top of your head, it's the truth of suffering, the, the dukkha, that there is dukkha in life, the truth that there's a cause of suffering, um, and the truth that there is an ending to this suffering, and the truth that there is a way, a roadmap uh, of practice that leads to the ending of suffering. So as I was saying, this quality of dukkha um, is the core problem of our, our human condition. And <clears throat> this is this is really important, what I'm going to say here next, so uh, I want you to listen carefully. All conditioned phenomena of body and mind, whether external or internal, refined or coarse, is or are unsatisfactory, impermanent, and empty of an abiding self. So, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And Whatever experience you have, whether internal or external, any conditioned experience has always got these three characteristics to the, embedded in them. And this comes as kind of an intellectual idea, but when you start to actually feel below the, the words into the, the feeling, it, they become a, a little bit more real or are a lot more real when you have the direct experience. 
So um, the way of practice, as I said, is the Noble Eightfold Path or the, uh, the roadmap out of dukkha. And it's grounded in qualities that really lead to mental brightness, to clarity, to a, a stillness, a quieting of the mind, to a sense of joy and happiness. And, um, and that sounds wonderful. And wouldn't it be nice if we could snap our fingers and have that happen? But it's a gradual practice. And um, the Buddha also uh, informed us that this is the way things really are for most people. Maybe some people get it right away, but uh, most of us, it doesn't happen that way. So the way of practice is um, rooted in the cultivation of virtue and integrity and um, morality uh, or sila. And this is like the first foundation. And then um, it's expanded in what we're all doing here by meditating and cultivating um, a, a training of the mind, a, 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 the ability to concentrate, or, or samadhi, it would be called in Pali. And then the, this leads to the cultivation of insight in, in, into wisdom. So um, there's an interfaith all right, excuse me, an interface between the nature of the teachings and the nature of truth. And um, when, we, when we take these two aspects of truth and practice, uh, uh, we see that uh, embedded in the teachings themselves is the actual way to practice. And um, <clears throat> the, the teachings uh, rely on the cultivation of qualities that are wholesome and harmless. So we're looking like you can't really still the mind if you're, if you're doing, uh, if you're out of integrity with your heart. So, so, and you, without a still mind, or a mind that's stable enough to see things as they really are, it's not really possible to to gain insight into what's going on. So, so these things just the Buddhist teachings are so beautifully um, <laughs> uh, put together on every single level. Um, when we begin to see this. Um, a stillness and brightness of the mind begins to just come in a natural way, and this leads to a sense of concentration. So uh, one of the things that I, I want to point out is that this can happen in really, really uh, practical ways. It, it doesn't, you don't have to go off on a five-month retreat and never say a word to anyone for five months. You can simply, in your own meditation practice, um, you can begin to notice just very slowly, or very gently, I want to say, not slowly, but very gently, what's happening. When you sit down and cross your, or sit on, on a chair or on the floor and close your eyes, 
what's happening, you see? And what most of us find is that um, the mind is busy and it's bouncing all over the place and, and then sometimes it quiets down and sometimes it doesn't and we've got lots of judgments and then we try to cultivate uh, and on and on and on. This is all completely normal and this is what happens to everyone. But <clears throat> the way things are is not just that the mind is restless in that, but that we reject the restlessness of our mind. We reject the distraction of our minds. We reject and resist that, and we don't see the resistance. The resistance is also the way things are. And so you can begin to practice this in very simple ways. I, I, I teach a compassion course, and one of the things that, that I use as an example is we touch these places that are difficult in us, and then we instantly turn away. And so it's something as simple as, I want chocolate ice cream for dessert, and I'm brought vanilla ice cream by the waiter. This is not what I want. And so I, you see, but in this moment, in something as simple as that, one can look at this quality and see that I wanted something else. I preferred something else. And therefore, I can't be with what is in a way that's really equanimous and and having any quality of gratitude or appreciation or whatever. And that resistance inclines my mind in that direction and creates a kind of response that's not only something that I experience, and I experience it immediately. I'm the immediate and direct recipient of this. We each are in our own experience. But then the poor waiter who brought me the wrong thing gets the blast of that, whether I say anything or not. So how do, how do we know that we affect other people? Well, part of it is on faith, but also think about it. Someone comes into your, your field of experience, someone comes in and sits down, and they're really grumpy about something, or they're really sad about something, or they're really, they just won the lottery and they're ecstatic about something. Even if they don't say a word, there's a kind of communication that happens between all of us that we pick, pick up on this. So, <clears throat> so I don't want to digress too much, but I really want to point out that this is something that can be cultivated. It doesn't have to be heady, and you don't have to go off on long retreats. It's wonderful to go off on long retreats. I don't want to uh, say, give you that, the impression that it's not. But it's not necessary. You can discover these truths in your everyday experience. And, and, and by, by revisiting what your intention is, it will help to ground you and balance you. So when you get lost, when you start to get overwhelmed, You've heard that you can just pause and take a breath. Well, another 
skillful means, I was going to say another trick, but another skillful means is that you can pause and consider for a moment what your intention is. What are your, what's your intention for doing the practice? And <clears throat> I, I'm not, I can't tell you what your intention is, but I can say from my own experience in my own practice and working with people um, in the way that I have, most people want to be happy and don't want to suffer. So underneath everything, I mean, we could, I could go around the room and people would describe their intention in different ways, but at the core of most of us as human beings, we all want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. And even when we do things that are um, really unskillful, if we look deeply, if, we, if we're able to get ourselves out of the way so we can actually see what's happening, those actions, those unskillful actions, maybe even obnoxious actions, were motivated by trying to find safety, happiness, and freedom from suffering. You see? So it's, it's a bit of a stretch to ask people to think that all the bad behavior in the world comes from that motivation. But this seems to be what connects us all as human beings. So, you know, the room is filled with a lot of people here, but I think that if we went around the room, there wouldn't be very many people who would say they don't, they want to suffer and they don't want to be happy. <clears throat> so, uh, <laughs> I'll let you reflect on that, whether what that's like for you. So, so <clears throat> as we begin to train the mind, as we be, you know, we live in an ethical way, and we begin to watch our behavior, we begin to watch our motivation, we begin to uh, sense into what it, things actually feel like when we're in harmony with our hearts and our deepest intention, and when we're out of sync with it, you see? And so <clears throat> this quality of conscience um, uh, plays, plays a part in it, but it can also get mixed up with this quality of judgment, where we're judging good and bad, right and wrong, and so on and so forth. Um, this is not what I'm talking about when I am referring to conscience. Uh, the conscience is this quality of knowing whether something, whether you're in integrity or not in integrity. And it tells you that very clearly without saying what a lousy person you are if you happen to have made a mistake or screwed up or did something that you are regretting. So uh, this Dhamma practice is very, very nuanced and very refined. But um, the more we live in harmony with, with you know, this quality of morality, this uh, it sounds 
Victorian, but I like to use the word integrity. That word feels good to me. When I live in integrity with my heart, there's a sense of spaciousness, openness, almost a boundless feeling that's involved with that, or associated with that. And what happens is that the mind just naturally starts to um, be less contracted or uh, the objects of mind don't seduce me in the ways that they did. I'm able to, to rest more in the stillness of the, of the mind that holds the objects and knows the objects. So um, this, this has this quality of concentration to it um, or, or, or just, um, you know, a stability of mind. Let's call it a stability of mind so that I then can begin to see things with greater clarity. And when I'm using I, I mean we. We then begin to see things with greater clarity. So... Um, <clears throat> As this begins to happen, then the, the gateway to wisdom is, is entered, and we are able to begin to direct the, the wisdom mind towards our experience. We're able to actually look at the way things are based on our practice. You see, if, <clears throat> if we don't practice... We can't see things clearly. We just do the same things over and over and over again. So I want to point back to a, 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 what I th think is a simple practical thing. And that is that when the perception of a, an unpleasant experience arises and we don't meet this experience for what it is, we try to distract ourselves. And in the distraction, and in the activity of distraction and busyness, we just repeat the same things that we default to over and over and over again. So we're not able to see clearly, you see? When we're able to see clearly, we're actually able to practice with greater skill. So they, they're never separate, they go together, and I don't know which one comes first. I think that uh, I lived in, in Burma for a while, and um, in Asia, lots of people actually, in these Buddhist countries, they actually don't meditate very much, but they really practice um, sila. They really cultivate this quality of generous hearts, um, you know, kind behavior, um, beautiful, compassionate qualities. Here in the West, we approach the practice through meditation. We go right to the university level. And, <clears throat> and that's fine. It's just a different way of doing it. Uh, but sooner or later, we see that these things really work together. They really do go hand in glove. They have to go hand in glove. What, what time does it? 
Okay, I just wanted to get us. <laughs> I didn't know if I went until 11 o'clock or whatever because I wanted to make sure I get this in here. Okay, so um, when we begin to access wisdom, um, we see things the way they are and, and that the, this is based on practice. And um, so we begin to, to see as I said in the beginning of the talk, that all conditioned experience, all phenomenal experience, whether it's something we're perceiving inside of ourselves or something that we're perceiving outside of ourselves, that it has this quality of unsatisfactoriness. It, it's just that's the nature of this quality. And so that can be a pretty um, unpleasant uh, discovery. And so we have to be careful because uh, uh, people will so sometimes say, it's all suffering. No matter where I look, it's suffering. The suffering's more than anyone can deal with. So what the hell, I'll just go have a beer. So it takes a certain kind of wisdom in order to be with this truth. And, and this comes from practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. It takes a certain kind of wisdom. So, you know, right view would be to be able to be in, in sync and in harmony with things as they are according to the Noble Eightfold Path here. So, um, so that's one aspect. Then, then another way is that you, you might have done this in your own life or you might know people who do this, but uh, we practice with this idea of gain, gain, gain. We're going to, like, self-improvement. We're, we're crazy about self-improvement in this country. And so, um, so when we're driven by that motivation, and if we're not clearly seeing that, we may practice, but we're not doing the kind of practice that leads to liberating insight. We're not... We're not practicing in a way that's um, integrity with the way things actually are. And we're not seeing this. And so, again, it's so important to cultivate the quality of mindfulness. Without mindfulness, nothing is possible. I, I mentioned a, a while ago that I lived in Burma for a while. And when I would go to my teacher, uh, people th thought that he only taught concentration, but that was just the first step in what he was teaching. And I would go to him, and he would say, for, basically, these aren't his words, I'm paraphrasing, forget concentration, cultivate mindfulness, and then concentration will come naturally. So it's, he's, everything is built on the backbone of mindfulness. So... Um, if all we're doing is practicing for ourselves, uh, uh, pretty soon uh, 
we just keep ourselves busy with practice and it's just another form of distraction, you see? Um, whether we're running here or there or to movies or to Dharma talks or to retreats or to you know, Club Med or wherever we go, but um, uh, it's just another way of keeping busy and it's not in harmony with um, the kind of practice that leads to the liberation of the heart. So, to the degree that it's possible for any of us, um, it's really important to see that things are truly impermanent, unsatisfactory, and absent of any kind of permanent abiding self. All the stories that we tell ourselves about what's happening to us are ways that we identify and build identities. And to see that every thought that arises is replaced by another thought. Every emotion that arises is replaced by another emotion. Every sensation that you experience in your body quickly changes. You see, I was meditating about a week ago, and my mind was busy, and I, I couldn't settle down, and the garbage truck was having that backup sound noise on. And, and so I just started this, I don't know if you've done Vipassana out loud practice, if any of you have done that. Anyway, I'd say I, was, I did this practice, but not out loud. I did it to myself. So now I hear sounds. Now I feel this sensation. Now I know a thought. Now I know this emotion. Now I know the hardness of my teeth. Now I know this. Now I know that. And just, and pretty soon, you know, the mind began to quiet a little bit just because I was following. But what occurred was the essential core truth that everything that was known was replaced almost immediately by something else being known. And when I touched the impermanent nature of that simple experience, when I touched it directly, it was quite disconcerting because there was nothing to hold on to and there was no self to hold on to, add no self. And I realized that the only way, I realized that one of the ways, one of the most skillful ways that one could be with that kind of a truth is only with compassion. It's only compassion that can hold the fact that there's nothing Stable that everything changes all the time from moment to moment to moment to moment. And we live in such a way that it's sort of like a movie, right? It goes so fast that it seems like it's actually real, but it's not. It's just one thought is replaced by another thought, it was replaced by an emotion, is replaced by a sound, is replaced by a sensation, and so on and so forth. So it's not easy to, um, to 
to balance this all out and to actualize this understanding in our world so or in our life experience so you know compassion uh, this is how I really would like to finish the talk. It's with compassion that one can actually um, begin to offer this, offer themselves the kind of kindness and friend, friendship that's needed in order to be with all of these different changing conditions in our lives, with in order to be with the ways that we abandon ourselves when we get this knot in our chest or a knot in our stomach, the way to be with um, the kind of things that come to us from the outside, the external triggers that we just react to that we don't really understand, but we just default to a reactivity and so on and so forth. It's, it's only with kindness that you can hold that. It's only with compassion that that, that can be nurtured and, and not rejected and, and that you, you can begin to perceive a gradual change, a gradual, um, yeah, a... a a, a gradual but profound transformation. You begin to see things from a different perspective and you begin to live from that place. And then when you examine your intention and your motivation for practice, you begin to f- perceive that it, it starts to mature in really beautiful ways. And the Dhamma begins to flower and fruit in your life in ways that you can't ever imagine when you you set out you, you know, life is almost never the way that we plan it out to be and the dhamma doesn't unfold in our lives in the way that we plan so um, <clears throat> this requires faith it really does require faith so when people say you're suffering turn to your suffering that's the only way through your suffering turns out when you practice, you discover that. But this requires faith before you discover it. It requires the faith that um, if you try this out, um, you know, you might experience some benefit. So the invitation in Buddhism is to just come and see for yourself. Come and try it out and see what happens. Try the practices out and um, see if they map to your experience. And if they don't map to your experience, um, then you know you you might see whether you're actually doing it. Uh, you're actually practicing from a place of integrity and authenticity, or um, whether the practice has any value to you at all. Um, so. Um, where I'm just about out of time, but I just will finish by saying um, it could be said that the true value of human life is realized in our shared ability to create goodness and understanding 
and to penetrate the truth of the way things are. We just need to learn how to tune into and cultivate those skillful means and keep them as our focus. So those are my thoughts for today on the spur of the moment. I, I hope that there was some uh, thread of continuity to what I was saying and that you could all follow it. Anyway, it's been lovely to be here with you, and I, I wish Andrea a quick recovery. So thank you.